I was reading this really familiar story that we're going to look at today, I thought that when I read it, it's such a familiar story to most of us that it's like hearing from a longtime friend. So like there's a few people, we'll see if anyone can relate to this. There's a few people in my life that I've known forever and a day, but that I rarely talk to anymore on the phone. Do you have these friends where when you reconnect with one of these types of people, um, after a long time, you just feel like you've never been apart? Um, as soon as you hear this familiar voice, these old memories rush in of these good times that you've had together. This is what I thought of um, when I thought of this parable. And so the, the challenge with hearing the parable of the prodigal son is that as soon as I say the word prodigal, you've already decided that you've heard this a million times before. And you're like, you know what, I know what this is about. And so the challenge is like a conversation with a good friend. Like this story has become so familiar to us. We've Many of us have already made up our minds. And so the challenge is going to be to try to listen to it again with some fresh ears, to pray that the Spirit will speak a fresh new word that helps us understand God's grace a little bit better and understand the ways in which we resist that grace, the ways in which we refuse to participate in the joy of lost things being found. So let's pray. Loving God, may we open ourselves up to the seeds of wisdom that lie dormant in the reading of your word. God, may our hearts, minds, and whole lives be fertile soil in which it may grow strong and true. Amen. Jeff is going to read this for me. I've been losing my voice this week, so he's going to help me out and give me a three-minute break. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the young son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. 
and they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years, I have been working like a slave for you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The word of the Lord. This is probably the most perfect story that Jesus ever told. Nothing I could say can really add much of anything to this parable. It is absolutely perfect the way it is. It's not going to stop me from trying, though. More than anything, when I look at this, it's the paramount teaching of Jesus on the nature and the character of God. And so God is this God that's always taking the initiative when it comes to love. When we feel like loving God, most people that are like experts in spirituality will say that we feel like loving God because we're experiencing God already loving us. And so this parable is framed by a problem. The fact is that Jesus is being accused of hanging out with the wrong people, right? This is not the first time this has happened. Tax collectors and sinners of every kind. And can you imagine he even eats with them? That's what it says. Like this is where we boo, we got to give a big boo. Like, it's Jesus' wide embrace that causes the religious professionals to grumble, the scripture says. Interestingly enough, some people still grumble about this today. And so Jesus responds to this criticism, and he actually tells three parables. We just looked at one. The first two are shorter. There are three stories of lost things being found, and each of them has this joyous celebration when that lost thing is found. First, we know these probably, the lost sheep, Then there's a lost coin that's found. And finally, in the third one, there are these two lost sons. And so like for me, I I, do people lose things a lot? I rarely ever lose anything. Like I know some people that lose things, but I'm not one of those. Dan, you're one of those. Like my friend, Julie Martin, like you said, she could every day she would lose her keys and like our whole church staff would go like trying to find her keys. This was a daily thing, but that's not me. Okay, so I don't lose anything. Um, but there was a time when I lost something that I, I thought like my life was coming to an end. Back in my youth ministry days, I took a group of 75 people to Chicago. So we piled 75, imagine the luggage, right? Backpacks and all the luggage of 75 people. I mean, it was a pile on the sidewalk that people could hardly walk around. And so I had stuff to do. So I took my backpack and I threw it on top of the pile. And there was a college student that was put in charge of luggage. And I said, all right. You know your job. Your job is to get every piece of luggage in this pile into the vans, right? It seems sensible. Um, Unfortunately, it was a huge mistake. When we arrive at our destination, my backpack is not there. 
Um, turns out it was left curbside. What you don't know is what was in said backpack. $1,000 cash, all the medical release forms for every person on the trip, my computer, all the travel docs, and our plane tickets for our return. Okay? I, I Probably people have never seen me like this before. All right? So, I mean, I am in a panic like never before. Actually, I was too bad Rick's not here today because Rick... Lee was with me, and after we got everybody to bed, I don't know, we're an hour or so from the airport, we, had to, we went back, and we're like, we, got, we have to go find this. Like, my entire life at that moment was in this backpack. Um, we searched multiple locations. We talked to tons of people. It was about 2 a.m. where we finally, somebody said, oh, I remember that backpack. <laughs> Bomb-sniffing dog, all right? So they thought that this was such a suspicious package that they actually... Uh, got out the bomb-sniffing dog. They'd gone through this thing with a fine-tooth comb. They released it into my care. And you're not going to believe this. Every single thing was still in it. You want to talk about rejoicing? Like, I have rarely rejoiced as much as I did that moment when I got all of that stuff back. The trip was saved, and I got to keep my job, which was a plus. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Um, We've all had these experiences of finding stuff that was lost. It feels good. But here's the sad fact about this parable. Not everybody rejoices when lost things are found. And this is the sad, this is the disturbing part of this parable. So inheritances in the first century, this is one of those things where they work the same they do today. Like my dad loves to tell my brother and I, that uh, he says, don't expect anything <laughs> for your inheritance because your mom and I have already spent it. So that's like his, his thing. And so the younger son, he gives like the ultimate slap in the face to his father. He asks for his share of the inheritance while his father is still alive. Um, he's essentially doing two things. He's permanently severing his familial relationship with his, with his dad and his brother. Um, and the second thing is, I think, even more disturbing. He's essentially saying that he wishes his father were dead. All right? This is a strong, strong statement. Like, we just... Don't, don't, don't do that. <laughs> and so, like, he gathers up his stuff. And, you know, the, the interesting thing about the father is you have to make a tough decision. It's, it, in the end, it doesn't change the meaning of the parable. But is the father, is he foolish for granting this request? Or is he gracious? This is a tough question, honestly. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about it. But it doesn't change the, the end result. But you do have to make that decision. And so the son gathers up his stuff. He goes as far away from his family as he possibly can. He goes to this place where no one can keep tabs on him, to a place where he can do whatever he wants, where he's accountable to absolutely no one, invisible to this world that he's left behind. Things do not go well for him. He hasn't hired Scott. He hasn't hired a good financial planner like Scott Newhouse. Um, he blows through all of his money. And does anyone like the dissolute living? <laughs> that word is great. Dissolute living. Uh, code word for like, he went on a bender and went to Vegas and did a bunch of stuff that he shouldn't have done. Um, but I love, that's what I love about the Bible. <laughs> Dissolute living. Um, come on, the Old Testament would have spelled that one out for us, but uh, they don't in the New Testament. So they cover it up with words like dissolute. Um, and so he finally, he hits rock bottom. He's experiencing starvation. He has nowhere else to turn. And he's forced to enslave himself to a Gentile pig farmer, a shameful job for a Jew. 
And so his time of servitude was up. We don't know how long that was. But he has this moment of clarity. This kind of light bulb goes off in his head. The scripture says he came to his senses. Even his father's servants, they have more than enough to eat. The big question is, so we asked a tough question about the dad. Now we have to ask a tough question about the son. Is he really remorseful for his actions? This is a hard question. I've, in the past, I've always just assumed that, oh, well, the Bible says he was sincere. So he was sincere. I'm not so sure it's saying that he's sincere. When I looked at it this time, I'm, not, I'm really not sure. Last week, we looked at Luke's desire for genuine repentance. The word repentance doesn't occur in this text at all. And so we do have to ask ourselves this tough question. We're left to wonder, is the younger son just trying to manipulate his father? Is he trying to pull on his heartstrings in order to get what he wants? Now, the same thing. It's like, and what about this dad? Is he really that gullible? Is he so easily fooled by his manipulative son? It doesn't matter how we answer the question. This is fun for people like me to think about. But it doesn't matter how we answer the question. It doesn't change the main point of the parable. The father doesn't care. This is the point. The father doesn't care whether his son is trying to manipulate him or not. He just loves him the same. Whether he's being manipulative or he's actually repentant, the, the father just wants the son to come home. And so I was thinking about this, like people that get taken advantage of. When you offer yourself freely, is there even such a thing as being taken advantage of? If you just offer and give yourself away, can you ever really be taken advantage of? This is this father. He is willing to freely give himself away. And so this picture is painted of God. It's a beautiful picture. When I, when I look at it, I just wonder if the father sat gazing out his window every single day since the son left. He's watching. He's hoping. He's praying. He's waiting for his son's return. And so when he sees him off at a distance, he was ready because he was probably ready the whole time. He was ready every single day from the day that his son left. He runs out to greet him on the road, which, by the way, the important detail is men, dignified men in the first century, did not run in public. It's a kind of a weird thing. Um, and I think it's still, this still exists in some cultures even today. This guy could care less. All he cares about is his son. And so his first order of business is to throw this raging party. Anyone find it funny, the whole, uh, no one laughed about the whole goat. Like, my dad didn't even give me a young goat to celebrate. Nobody finds that funny. I'm the only one. <laughs> like, that's funny. You celebrate in the first century with a young goat? I just think that's weird. But anyway, that's just me. These, uh, you know, you've got, so what you have is rings, robes, sandals, and fatted cats. And they're given for a really specific reason. They want to take this guy who most people would look at and they would say, this kid's a loser. Like he has screwed up his life so bad. And what his dad says is he takes these gifts and he gives these gifts to his son. And he restores him. He moves him from loser back to son. He restores him to son. This Son who was lost has been found. This son who was dead to him is now alive again. And so remember at the beginning, the frame that set this whole thing, the religious professionals not rejoicing with Jesus' welcoming of the wrong people. Now we have to sit with the older brother for a minute. He should remind us of the religious professionals at the very beginning. 
And we have to sit with him in his like just bitterness and resentment. He feels like he's been taken advantage of. He's angered by the compassion of his father. He feels overlooked, betrayed even by his own dad. He's always been there for his dad. He's always been faithful. He's always worked hard. And for what? This is what he's thinking. He basically screams out something that anyone who's had kids or has been around kids long enough has heard a million times. I could even start it. We'll see if this works. That's not fair. Okay. He wants justice. He doesn't want to party. He wants his brother to be punished. Sell it. Now, how? Let's see if, if I'm, I'm, hopefully I'm not the only one. Is it, it is hard for humans to celebrate somebody else's victory. Like, we don't do this easily. It doesn't come easy to us when someone else is graced or blessed or whatever to celebrate with that person. Sometimes that's hard for us. And here we see it to be really, really hard for his brother. And the interesting thing here maybe is that this brother, the older brother, he's just as lost as the younger one. He may, in fact, be more lost. Father Richard Rohr, anyone ever read or listened to his stuff? Um, I was listening to a little thing that he said, and he's like, dude, the older brother's more lost than the younger one. And it's fascinating, but he's on the outside looking in now, alienated from his family, and he's the one now in a distant and faraway land, all the making of his own mind. This is a really fascinating study. And so both sons misunderstand grace. To simplify this a little bit, the younger son bargains and manipulates, right? He thinks he can just talk his way into his father's love, but what he doesn't yet understand is the grace can't be manipulated. His father's going to give it freely anyway. The younger son needs to learn that God's grace is freely given, that there's nothing that he can do to earn the love of his father. The father just loves him no matter what. The responsible older brother... He allows his thirst for justice and fairness to spoil the party. Now, who's ever had a sibling that they thought was treated better than them? Anyone admit it? Come on. Oh, I will. I'm an older brother. My little brother came along, and man, I'm like, how come my dad's so easy on this kid? Like, I don't get this. You know, most of us can, can understand and have been on one side of the other. Now, when I used to say to my dad, that's not fair, my dad... Every single time. If I did it today, I guarantee he would do the same thing. He would always diffuse the situation with humor, and his humor always contained this little seed of truth. He would say, the reason I did that is because I love your brother more than you. (laughs) And I'd be like, I never once knew what to say. I've never figured out if somebody, you would actually really be doing me a favor. Like, if someone can come up with a response that I can come back to my dad on that one, trust me, I would be like eternally grateful. This would be a big deal. So think about these responses and let me know one afterwards because it was like a showstopper. Every time he said that, I'd just be like, but, 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 and I could never finish the sentence. You know? um, grace isn't always fair. And this is a truth that we learn, this thing that we have to grapple with that comes out of this, uh, of this parable. Although grace seems unfair, the thing that we have to remember is that both sons are equally loved. And we can't, we're not going to lose sight of that. Uh, my big learning this time around from this parable and reading it 
was looking at the father, he crosses two important thresholds, one for each son. For his younger son, he runs, he's waiting, and he runs to greet this younger son, and he welcomes him home. But he crosses the second threshold when he's begging and pleading the older brother to come and join the celebration. Remember what he says. He says, all I have is yours. Everything the father has, he's given to both of his boys. And what Jesus is saying, he's saying the same thing. Jesus is trying to paint us a picture of who God is. Jesus is saying all that the father has is ours. And so many in Jesus's day and some today find this kind of grace to be offensive. My grandma, I had a, my grandma Estes, my mom's mom, she brought fairness to an obsession. She gave gifts to all the grandkids. Every single gift, even if they were different, would have the exact same dollar value worth. And she would present the receipts to prove it. Okay? <laughs> if my gift were $5 more than my brother's, my brother would get a $5 bill with his gift so that they were exactly the same. Like we, all the grandkids knew, we knew that my grandma Estes was the fairest person on the planet. Like we never doubted that we were getting the exact same thing. It's important to my grandma that she was fair. It's important to grandmas that they're fair. That's an important thing, but it doesn't seem as important to God. But here's what we have to remember. We're all loved, we're all graced, we're all welcomed, but we don't all get the same things. We can be angry about it and bitter and wallow in resentment and self-pity like the older brother, or we can learn to rejoice. The father wanted the older brother to, re to learn to rejoice, to learn to celebrate this blessing, this return of his brother who was dead, who was now alive. And so I thought a little bit to wrap it up about what we're doing in worship each week. It's this chance to celebrate the homecoming of prodigals, including ourselves. This is a place where we try driving out resentments about who's invited, who's welcomed, and who's not. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Romans, he wrote something so simple and beautiful that we could really stand to hear this today. Paul writes, welcome one another, therefore just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And so all of us are returned prodigals who were lost and have been found. And that's the reason that we can welcome everyone, welcome every kind of sinners, and we can even eat with them too. This parable was told to show the wideness of God's mercy, the wideness of God's embrace. It shows us this most perfect picture of God, this God who is watching and waiting, waiting for us, a God who runs to meet us, sinners of every kind, and welcome us back home. Some people get a little bent out of shape about the question of who's worthy of God's divine love and who isn't, but all Jesus seems to care about is reminding us that God wants to bring in every single person who is lost and forsaken, and God wants to throw them a party. How cool is that when they come home? And so my thinking is, I just hope and pray that we will all be willing to join the celebration. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for this just absolutely beautiful image, God, of who you are. We thank you for your continued love and welcome of each of us, even when we stray into places that are distant and far away. Even, God, when we get it wrong and live in uh, dissolute ways. God, we thank you for welcoming us and loving us back. And God, help us when other people are blessed, when they receive your grace, help us to join in the celebration when lost things are found. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.